Well, I, I have had interesting conversation with several physicians who are here, and I've discovered, I've learned that CBT is not something you can get easily here in England. Because, you, because it's not on your health plan. I mean, you can't get it. So, um, I don't know what to recommend. You, what's that? Yes, you have to get it, but you have to pay for it. Yes, that's the point. You can get it in some GP surgeries. And if you're lucky. Well, yeah, um, you win some, you lose some. Yes, go ahead, Lulu. Um, there is a very helpful cognitive behavioral website. Oops, thank you. Okay, that, yes, I've heard about the website. Go, go ahead. There's a very helpful um, website which I've used, and it's, it's good. Um, it's based up in Glasgow. It's called livinglifetothefull.com. Say that again. Livinglifetothefull. Livinglifetothefull.com. And... Um, Dr. Chris Williams has set this up. It's done through the Glasgow um, Social Services, so you do have to sort of submit a little sort of a, you know, a questionnaire thing. It's free. He's actually a Christian, and he's written some books, you know, in, in the, in the, as a Christian book, as if you like, but this website is not done as a Christian website. It's a very, very helpful website. Um, it, it's not the slickest website in the whole world, and um, it takes a bit of time to download things, but you download printouts. He also, it's, it's, uh, he speaks it out over, um, through the website, so you're getting it through your ears, and you're getting it through your eyes, and there are worksheets to do. Um, it's not... Maybe it's not quite as good as having a you know, one-to-one therapist, but it's certainly better than nothing. I found it very useful, and he has some very good aids, so that might be worth checking out. Okay, thank you. I don't want to be too self-promoting, but I, my book, Habits of the Mind, is in fact a book about using a cognitive therapy approach. H- how to build healthy habits. It, it, it's not written as a treatment modality, but more for general Christian consumption. It's called... Habits of the Mind. I, I sell more of that book than almost any other of my books. That I, I, all the time. It's not... I've had to have it... It's out of print. I've, I reprint it because I'm getting... I get so many requests. But that, that's a resource that is from a cognitive therapy perspective. But thank you, uh, doctors, who informed me of that, just to make it clear. I, I wanted to just quickly know... I'm, this is what you need to know about antidepressant medications. I don't want to spend too much time on it. It's not my job to, uh, you know, uh, and certainly not your job to give advice on types of medication, but there are some principles you need to understand. Compliance is a major challenge. The, the biggest stra- challenge in the treatment of depression is compliance. Because it takes so long bef- for it to kick in, it is very difficult to keep the patient taking it. And every doctor who treats depression will tell you compliance is the biggest challenge of all. Uh, you know, I run out of the prescription. And so for three or four days, they don't have the prescription. And, and they go a week, and you know what? It feels good. I, I, you know? Now, the, the problem is that it takes four to six weeks for the medication to work. And if you stop the medication when it does work, it takes four to six weeks for the depression to come back. Get it? And so, you know, 
six weeks in treatment, a patient will call up and say, oh, I'm, I'm out of my depression, now. everything's fine, so I've stopped my medication, and bye-bye, I don't need to see you. Oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. I'll see you in a few weeks, because as long as it takes for the medication to kick in is how long it's going to take for the depression to return. Very important point to keep in mind. Uh, so compliance and make sure you stick with it. It's not mind-altering and it is not addicting. A, a medication you take now and six weeks later makes you feel better is no way it can be addicting. The problem is it takes so long that you want to give up on it. So, it, it is, is not addicting. Uh, keep in mind, because of the excess of cortisol is so damaging, I predict that within 15 years, the way I see things going in the States, uh, the way I see with my own teenagers and so on, I, I predict that within about 15 years, certainly in the United States, we will have almost every teenager on an antidepressant in order to protect their brain, help them learn, etc., uh, etc. Et One of the effects of cortisol is to shrink this hippocampus and that affects memory and that affects learning. So what are you going to do? Just, you know, let your teenagers go to pot? So I, I'm predicting that's going to happen. Uh, no, I'm not encouraging it. I, I hope it doesn't happen. But at the rate we are going... Um, the, 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 there's also a, 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 a dramatic increase in learning disabilities in, in kids who can't study. They, they, they're overdiagnosing attention deficit disorder. That's the label they're putting on it. But many of these kids are suffering from depression, uh, hippocampal shrinkage or atrophy, it's called, which is affecting their memory, and that, that therefore they cannot learn. And uh, we, either that or someone turn off the plug. Let's see if we can get the stress thing down. It, it really is, is a, uh, a serious matter. Okay, the problem, it takes four to six weeks. Patient easily becomes demoralized. So I want, I want to say a few words about suicide and antidepressants. There's a black box warning in the States now that, uh, particularly with teenagers, uh, and that is that uh, you take this antidepressant, you're at risk for increased suicide. Now, how true is that? That is a cautionary warning driven by the litigious nature of the United States. Anyway, drug companies can protect themselves from lawsuits. But what, 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 is, the, 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 what is the fact here? Does an antidepressant increase the risk of suicide? Big issue in the States. It is not the medication that causes the suicide, it's depression that causes the suicide. And, and this is how it works. The greatest risk for committing suicide, and when there is a serious depression, the risk is high. The greatest risk for suicide occurs when a patient starts to take an antidepressant, and the weeks go by and there's no improvement. There is a slow demoralizing process going on. And the point just before the medication kicks in 
is the point of greatest risk for suicide. And that's when most suicides occur. I've been taking this medication for five weeks. It's not going to work. Life is too miserable. Bang. And uh, there's been very careful studies in the United States as to when the suicide is occurring. It's occurring there. So, all doctors, all, you know, who, mental health uh, people who are involved in treatment of depression <coughs> in the States have to increase their vigilance and their support. You don't put a patient on antidepressants and say, see me two, uh, two months from now so we can see whether it's working or not. No. You schedule appointments to see that patient, especially in the w- few weeks before it's supposed to kick in. In other words, you give special attention to that lowest point in the valley. Just the, it's the dark moment just before the sunrise. I, I will tell my, the parents of my teenage uh, patients... I want you starting at about this date. I, you need to clear out. I don't want any guns around the house. I don't want any of your medications easily available that could be used for overdosing. Any sharp knives, anything like that. We've got to be vigilant here. I, my oldest grandson uh, went through very bad depression after his dad died and when he was 16, 17, was suicidal. And we, round the clock as a family, took turns all the medication and that was before the scare that is now so very very strong so you know pastor Christian leader if you're involved in any way in in people's lives who are in this sort of treatment bear in mind this is where we can be helpful there's no no greater tragedy in my opinion than to see a suicide just one week before that medication would probably have worked nothing is worse so, I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing that there is an increased risk of suicide in a severely depressed person who is on treatment. Interestingly, if not the treatment, it's not... A, you don't get the demoralizing effect. If you're not getting the treatment, you're not get this, you don't get this idea that things are worse than it really is. When you start the treatment, you set up the expectations that, that promotes a greater level of demoralization. You get that point? And, and, and that, that is when... The point of greatest risk. So uh, there is there is a risk, but um, but it is really due to the mismanagement of the treatment that that risk is, exists, not because of the medication itself. But Scientology is playing this up big time, trying to put the scare in, into parents' uh, minds to warn them uh, away from it. Now, I, I can't pass off this topic, and I want to get to the reactive depression in a moment, without making a comment about the placebo effect. This, this, this is undergoing fairly dramatic changes, the, our understanding of the placebo effect. Let, let's, um, let's, assume, let's assume that I mow the lawn in my backyard and I take the little the clippings and I dry them out and then I crush them and I put them into capsules. And then I, I, and then I go to England and I go to a wonderful group of people in an auditorium full like this. And I say to those of you who are depressed, I want you to come forward because you know, this is a very special gift from God. This antidepressant will work without a doubt. 
come forward and get your medication. How many people do you think will swear on the Bible that that medication cured their, fixed their depression? It is somewhere between 25 and 30 percent. One in two, one in four, one in three will get better from the placebo. And recent studies, I'm, I'm very fascinated with the placebo effect. Because if one out of three or four people can respond to a placebo, wow, think of all the money we can save. Huh? We can just find out who they are. Uh, we, we can save a lot of money. There's been some talk in the United States for bringing back, years ago, doctors had a placebo that they could prescribe. And there's been some talking bringing it back now. So that, you know, a doctor could prescribe a placebo. And if it works, my way, look at, you know. The only trouble is the drug companies will charge a fortune for it. <laughs> but at any rate, the, the, the placebo effect. And there have been studies now that have looked using functional MRIs. These are brain scans, very high resolution that can monitor the flow of blood and activity in the brain. And what they are finding, the studies look, you see, depression, is, depression treatment is very, very prone to the placebo effect. So are pain disorders. So they've looked at pain disorders, comparing placebos with actual painkillers. And you know, study out of Yale University demonstrated that from the picture of the brain's perspective, the treatment with the real medication and the treatment with the placebo, when it worked, were identical in terms of the brain scans. Or put it simply, that the placebo actually produced the changes in the brain that you get when you take the real medication. And that has revolutionized our thinking about placebo. Wow! Now, going along with that is this idea that is now very strong in, in neuropsychological circles, and that is that our thinking can actually change our brain chemistry. It's called the upregulation and downregulation of, of, of function. Our, our neurons and our brain gives rise to our thoughts. And those thoughts can come back to the neurons and change them. Now this is a revolutionary idea. It gets back to my plea that we do not think dualistically. No longer can we do we have a brain and a mind. They used to be very common dualism. Well, the mind is bigger than the brain. The mind is more than the brain. And a lot of philosophers and others have tried to make out that our brain is as if it were something separate from. No, they're one and the same thing. And they're interrelated. And our, and our, and our brain, the brain helps our thinking, but our thinking can downregulate the brain and modify it. And all you have to do is believe that this is going to help you. Lo and behold, in both the area of pain and depression, it works. Drug researchers in the area of depression have to control for the placebo effect very carefully. If you d develop a drug that is effective in 30% of clinically depressed people, 
All you have is a placebo. It's got to be more than 30% before it's valid. Now, the drug itself only goes up to 56%. You see, a real drug doesn't give you very much more than a placebo effect, really. Unless you add this other stuff, unless you bring in the stress management, and now you can get it up to 86%. But, but to, to reports that show that, that a certain drug is effective in 60% of cases is really not a bad report. That's a pretty good report. Now, th- this has implications for us as Christians and what we believe in that what we believe has a powerful effect on what happens inside us. So, <clears throat> but, and, and the, those who respond to placebo are called rece- placebo responders, and it's a very unique group of people. I have uh, tried to do some research here to try and identify. How can I identify? Can I give my patients a test? See if I can determine who's a placebo responder. If, if I could, imagine how dramatic, what, what a fantastic improvement that would be. And I, I've got some theories about that. I've got some theories about what... It, it, it's not simple-minded people, by the way. This gets, it, intelligence has got nothing to do with it. But I think that there are some people who are more trusting, more faith-based, more that... that that can generate that change in their brain's function that can receive the downregulation of their thinking and beliefs. If I believe this is going to help me, it can help me. So that, that's a whole new area of research that we're going back to now, the placebo response. A lot of discussions and talks about it, and it fascinates me because, again, it, 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 it emphasizes my thesis and that we are a whole being, you know, all of this, we must stop the dualisms. This is all interactive. Uh, my body and my brain and, and my spirit. Don't forget, the spirit is a part of this as well. But it, it goes a step further. Let's assume, let's assume that I take a hundred people and we put them on an antidepressant and those 100 people respond to the medication, let's assume it's a nice perfect group, and get better. But the moment they are better, I switch them to a placebo. It looks exactly the same pill, it looks like everything is wrong. So they, they got better. But now we switch to a placebo. Got it? How many people do you think would continue to remain better? Well, the placebo response is about 25 to 30%. But if I give you a real medication first and then switch to the placebo effect, uh, it goes to 50%. I can double. If I start you on a real antidepressant, and then switch it without you realizing it. Half of you will continue to remain improved. You see, what, 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 why is that? Because now, the, 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 those of you who are a little bit more cynical, pessimistic, have, it's proven, you've had it proved to you that this is works. So I've, we've taken the placebo responders from 25-30% up to 50% of you. Now believe it. And it continues to do its down-regulation work. 
this, this, is, this is very interesting research and it, it would be very, very interesting to see where we will go with that because if we can identify those who have those unique characteristics, it can make a big difference in the area, not only of depression, but in pain. Pain is the other biggie. Is the other biggie. So it, it's very, very fascinating uh, research. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, I think that I was going to say a few words about naturally complementary, you know, over-the-counter or, what do you call them here, naturals, uh, herbs, 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 huh? What are they called here? Homeopathic. Well, homeopathic is just one aspect of that. Natural. Yeah, natural. Well, a, a lot of people use naturals, right? Non-prescription medications. And uh, I just wanted to, to, to make a, a few comments here about that. A lot of those, now don't misunderstand me, I'm not trying to demean the use of that, but a lot of the effectiveness of those medications will also have the placebo effect. You've just got to bear in mind that that's going to operate there just as well with a prescription medication. And so, you know, the fact that a given medication works in one in three people, over-the-counter stuff, doesn't mean it necessarily works, it just means that it's as good as a placebo response. But a couple of cautions that are coming out now. One, there is no control over the manufacture of these natural substances. And that is a serious concern. We have enough problem with you know, the companies that are under control with prescription. But where they're being made in China somewhere or somewhere in the world, you have no idea where. You don't even know whether the St. John's wort you are buying has any St. John's wort in it. Because there is no control. Secondly, we have no control over the contaminants that, that could be in lead, other contaminants that could be in those substances. So, um, thirdly, if you are taking the genuine product, there's now a, it, it has to have an active ingredient. There's, there's, there's a strange sort of dualistic way of thinking here. People think they're taking a natural thing and it doesn't have an, any drug in it. If it, if it helps your anxiety or depression, it's got an active ingredient that's got to be similar to that in a prescription medication. I, I mean, how can it do its work if it's not, doesn't have that? So every natural has to have an active ingredient. And in legitimate producers of these, these, these active ingredients are being identified and some of them conflict with others, naturals, and conflict with prescription medications. And that can be a problem. If you take this one herbal, I forget which one it is now, maybe someone knows, but if you take it on a regular basis, then you have to have emergency surgery. The anesthesia is going to last much longer if you're on that than, in other words, you will not recover from the anesthetic as quickly if. Some of these medications interact with other medications. There's some evidence that St. John's wort is a particular type of antidepressant called MAOI, monoamine oxidase inhibitor. I haven't got into that, but that's a, a type of antidepressant that is quite effective, but has very severe dietary restrictions. No wine, no cheese, no processed foods, no, no sausage, any, any preserved foods. You, you, you could kill yourself. And St. John's wort is one of those medications. 
Now, the only saving grace is that most people take St. John's wort at a level that's hardly therapeutic. But if you took it at a dose that is therapeutic, you take upon yourself the same dietary restrictions as you would with a prescription drug. So, all I'm trying to say is, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's necessarily safe. And you, just may, you need to make sure you go to a legitimate, trusted producer. Now, <clears throat> I, I want to close out with a few comments. I'm not going to use my PowerPoint, but uh, if you have the outline for the... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I, I might even take a few minutes this evening to finish off on this one. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to stress myself and try to rush it. And You don't mind if I don't, huh? But I, I, want, I want to at least start in on the topic of reactive depression. And then uh, this evening, I, I'm talking about hidden addictions, but I might want to just finish off a few thoughts about this. Let me <clears throat> share just a few thoughts with you on the reactive depression. Um, Reactive depression is a response to loss. As I suggested this morning, all of life is lost, so that puts 100% of us at risk for at some time or other, developing a depression related uh, to that loss. The reactive depressions are usually not as serious as the endogenous depressions. You seldom see suicide. Um, you... It, it, the, the response to loss, that mechanism, the, the biochemistry of it, I don't know has been studied very carefully, but we know this much, that it, there really is nothing wrong with the brain's biochemistry. There's no deficiency of neurotransmitter or disruption of synapses or anything like that. What we have is a process, it's a biological process. Don't think of grief as not having a biology, biological component. It really does. I mean, I know the feeling. I, 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 my most serious reactive depressions these days is when my wife and I have a fight. <laughs> I don't know. I, for me, that is such a loss that I, I can go into a reactive depression that could last a week. It, it, it's, it's a very painful thing for me. The, 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 the important thing to, bear, to keep in mind about the reactive depression is that it's not the loss itself that causes the depression. It's the meaning you attach to the loss that is the important factor. So, you may lose something and I lose the same thing it's no big deal. I shrug my shoulder I move on for you it's devastating so it's very difficult for example for a counsellor to really resonate with uh, someone who is having reactive depression especially if you 
can't put yourself in their shoes. It's very difficult, very difficult to understand what, what that loss is if you don't, and, and that's part of the counseling process. Is, you know, what is this loss? What is it that, what does it mean? What does this object they have lost mean to them that is causing their, causing their grief? There is an ideal way of responding to loss. And uh, can, you, can you imagine a drawing board, a glass board, and I'm drawing on it now. The ideal loss is going something like this. I'm drawing a, an inverted U for those who are on the tape. An inverted U. I'm, and on the left side of it, as we go up, I put a little cross, and that's the point where the loss occurs. Well, it's actually not when the loss occurs either. It's when you perceive the loss. Now, so, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm, when I'm dean, I'm, I'm meeting with a student, the student makes some remark, and, you know, that's it, I, I go about my day. And that night I'm lying in bed, and I'm thinking through the day, and his comment comes back to me. And suddenly I realize that he was criticizing me. It didn't dawn on me then. So, when did the loss occur? Not when he said it, but when I perceived it, you see. So, it's, it, that, that's, that's an important point, because it's the, it, the perception of loss, and sometimes with our thinking patterns, if we are very um, catastrophic in the way we think, we can generate losses that are purely fictional. Because... You know, we imagine, you know, I imagine that student was criticizing me and maybe, you know, and, and then you get it. Anyway, I get a loss. And now the ideal way to experience the depression is you go down into a valley, the, the, the inverted U, or the U. Go down into a valley. Ideally, the more you can allow yourself to go down in that valley, become depressed, allow yourself to be depressed, embrace the sadness of that event. The more you can do that, the better. And then, out of that, we are designed for this sad feeling as part of the process. And then, as we come, as it, it flattens out, and then it becomes, and ideally, we come out of the depression and we continue now with the, the last result. Ideally, it's a smooth down into a deep depression. I give myself permission to do that, and then it comes out the other side, and I go about my way. If only it were that simple. For most of us, we start to go down into depression. And the moment we start to go into depression, we try to short-circuit the process. And as we go down into depression, we... We build a bridge across the valley of our depression and we try to short-circuit it to get to the other. Now, there are several ways we can build this bridge and short-circuit. Uh, and, and Christians, by the way, are brilliant at this. First thing is we, we, we say something like, well, it's God's will. Yeah, my, wife, my, my wife walked out on me, took the kids, but that's okay, it's God's will. So instead of grieving, instead of allowing that sadness and that grief and that depression to come over me, I try to cut it off, short circuit. We can short circuit 
by rushing in to replace the loss. I'll never forget. The closest I've come to strangling somebody. (laughs) You've never, of course, ever even had thoughts like that, have you? It's after my daughter was bereaved, after Richard's death. It was barely a month when a dear old lady from church, I, she, she didn't mean it, I don't think, but she came up to my daughter Sharon and took her hand. So, oh, Sharon, I just want you to know I've been grieving for you. Now, I don't know how it's possible, how helpful it is for others to grieve for me, that, <clears throat> but that's another matter. It's just, I've, I've, been, I've just been in a lot of pain, but look, I've, I've got a word for you, and I, I just want to encourage you. You know, you're young, and you're beautiful. You'll always be able to find another husband. <laughs> That's short-circuiting. You, you want to replace the loss. I had a client once. Uh, she was a lady in her 40s. Uh, she was single. She was a nurse. And she was working night shift. She was socially sort of disengaged. And I I had helped her get her life together and and get back into some social context and get to meet people again. And and I was seeing her less just sort of once every now and again as on a maintenance basis. And she had a beautiful cat. I mean, a gorgeous cat. She'd bring her picture in. And show me uh, this, this gorgeous, beautiful cat. And, and for her, this cat was literally her child. I mean, her, her affection for it, her love for it. She must have loved that kitten as much as I love little Andy. I mean, it's just one of those. And I hadn't seen her for a couple of months. The telephone rang. The secretary said, she so-and-so wants to talk to you. I said, all right, I'll, I'll have a word with her. And I asked her how she was doing. She, she was sobbing, crying her heart out. She'd taken her kitty, as she called it, yes, the day before, to the vet for a relatively minor surgery. But the kitty died on the operating table. She was devastated. Devastated. So I said to her, her name was Virginia, I said, Virginia, you've got to come in. I need to see you. I knew how much she loved that cat. That cat. Oh, oh, no, 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 don't, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'm, a friend of mine says to me that I must go out as quickly as possible and buy myself another kitten. I said, Virginia, don't do that. Don't even think about it. No, 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 no that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go buy another kitty. I said, all right, if that's your choice, fine. Uh, as soon as you need me, give me a call. We hung up. Two weeks later, I get the phone call. She's sobbing and crying again. She'd, she'd taken that kitten home. She'd gone and got one a few days later. Took it home, thinking that this would replace the loss. Right? This kitten, new kitten, was a holy terror. It pooped all over her apartment. It ripped her curtains to shreds. And it started vomiting. Oh, I, I hate this kitten. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I said, Virginia, we need to talk, okay? 
it was clear that there was something wrong with the kitten who had some gastrointestinal problem. I said, you take it back to the shop you bought it from. There's a return policy in the States, and it's within, it's, it's only two weeks. You take it back to the shop. Just give it back to them. Don't even ask for your money back. Just give it back to them. Come in, I want to see you. We have got to do some grieving talk. I need to help you through this process. You see, you cannot short-circuit the process without aborting it and only just accumulating the, the consequences. She came in. We st- I started to do grief counseling with her. One of the, now, what is grieving all about? Let me, let me, let me because we're almost out of time. Let me just tell you what grieving is all about. Grieving is all about saying goodbye. It's all about saying goodbye. That's what grief is all about. When Richard died, and we were devastated as a family, I just reminded everybody, you know what, folks? The sooner we can say goodbye to Richard, the sooner we can let him go. It's all about letting go. The, The complications of grief is when we hold on, we won't let go. It's all about letting go, saying goodbye. And I started to take her through the process. We talked about the kitty. And she bring all your photographs. I, we, we, I, want to, I want you to tell me as much as you can about that kitty. Because in order to let go, in order to say goodbye, you've got to know what it is you are letting go. And the grieving process. You get fired from your job. What's the grieving process? I, it's, it's knowing what it is you let go. And it's, and it's, it's more complex than just Losing my job. If you're a pastor and you get fired, what does it mean? What, what is it you're saying goodbye to? You haven't got a clue when you first have that devastating experience. There's a process here of discovery. A process of discovery. Discovering what it is you've lost. Oh, I've just got divorced. We've got to find out what it means. You see, for, for, for you, it means something different than for you. The same life experience means different things to different people. We do not do a good job in our discipling and Christianizing and teaching of our people in our church. In our evangelical, we do not teach them how to grieve. How to process their grief. How to say goodbye. It's a process of discovery. I must. So the grieving process, the reason why we are made sad. The reason why we go down into this introspective, because that's what happens. We turn inward, you right? We become introspective. We become depressed because the depression removes us from our act of life and sets us aside intentionally so we can discover what it is lost. God knew when he created us. My child, this loss of stuff is going to really be tough for you. I, I will build in there a process help you do it properly. If I gave you a callous attitude so whatever you lost didn't mean anything, you'd be monsters. I know it's painful. 
It has to be if it's going to work properly. But take courage. Because out of your saying goodbye comes a whole new hello. It's part of the process. My oldest daughter, my oldest daughter, um, as she was getting to the end of high school, became depressed. I could see the depression coming on her. She had, didn't like school. She was ready to get on to the next stage of life. She was so eager to get to the, when we'd moved to the States, she wanted to get high school over with and get on with her life. And she had built up this expectation, you know, that a whole new freedom's going to come the moment she's out of school and becomes an adult and gets on with her life. But as she approached graduation from high school, I could see her going down into that valley. Down, 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 down. So one day I got up the courage to say to her, Catherine, how are you doing, honey? Oh, Dad, I'm glad you asked. I didn't want to bother you, but I don't know. I just feel lousy. I just, you know, sometimes you can't always find the words to describe what depression is, you know. I don't feel like doing anything. I'm just laying around. Uh, you know, I feel like cry all the time. I said, honey, I think you're depressed. Come on, let's, let, you know, and I, I know she wasn't endogenously depressed. And I said, come on, let, let, let me help you sort of sort through this. Let's see if we can find out what it is you've... In its essence, I didn't say that in as many words, but what, what is the loss you're experiencing now? You know, it didn't seem obvious right there and then. And I began to talk very... I got her talking, I got her talking, talking about, you know, getting ready for graduation and all that. And the next thing she stopped and said, oh, Dad, oh, my word. She started crying. I'm never going to see these people again. I'm not going to see my friends again. One's going off, her parents are missionaries, they're going back to Africa somewhere. A, a boyfriend she had was going off to medical school and didn't want to continue the relationship. Another friend was going there. They were being scattered to the four winds of the earth. You see, in the midst of her excitement and getting on with the next stage of her life, she didn't realize that in order to embrace the next stage of her life, you've got to say goodbye to the previous. Every stage of life change involves a saying goodbye to something while you embrace the new. My middle daughter was the first to get married. She... <clears throat> And as the, the wedding uh, approached, about six weeks before, I find how I was depressed. You know, I'm excited for my daughter. I, you know, I, I always fear, I'm, getting, I'm worried that they'd never find the right guy and, and she's getting married. I should be excited, I should be thrilled, but I'm depressed and I'm trying to figure out why I'm depressed. You can't figure it out by yourself. So I, I, I thought I'd talk it over with my daughter who's getting married. I said, you know, I'm depressed. I don't know why I'm depressed. And I started to talk. I'm starting to talk, you know, and suddenly, suddenly there it was. This is my only, the first of my daughters I'm saying goodbye to. Now, she's going off. She's going to go with another man. She's going to become another man's darling. She's not, I'm going to be her papa anymore. We were very close. 
You know, and then people say to you, oh, but, but remember, you're not losing a daughter. You're gaining a son-in-law. Idiots. <laughs> Since when is a son-in-law equivalent to a daughter? But you know, the moment I identified the loss and I knew what it was, this is my closing point, the depression lifted. See, that's how we were designed. my, My child, you have to find out what that loss really is. And when you find out what it is, you can say goodbye with a hallelujah. Let us pray. I'll continue this evening. Father, we do acknowledge that loss is painful. Saying goodbye can be such a devastating thing. But we thank you that you have not left us destitute. You have not left us without help. Forgive us if we don't always understand it. But Father, we embrace your plan for our life. Losses or not. Losses or gains. Just pray that you will give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom we need to deal with our losses creatively and to bring glory to your name for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, thank you and uh, have a good dinner.